This is a Triple J podcast. Hey there, it's Tim Shepard for The Shake Up. Look, it's Friday, which of course means it's time for us to break down the news. And it's been a pretty busy week. There's been a lot of round. So here's what we've got coming up. Hack. They knew they needed to make a change. They've made it, but they've made it at a time where everything's coming down against them. It's really changed from people that just couldn't afford the great stuff to a younger market. I want to be paid fairly. I want to do decent work, but I want work to fit neatly in my life and not overwhelm it. On Triple Jack. This is The Shake Up, of course, so don't be afraid to get involved. We want to hear from you. You can do that by texting in on 0439757555 or calling on 1300555536. Before we can get into it, though, I need to introduce our Shake Up guests. First up is someone you're very familiar with. She's a regular on The Shake Up, News Corp journalist Eliza Barr. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. How have you been? Oh, look, can't complain. It's Friday, so there's just it's all up from here, really. It's all good news around the corner, isn't it? That's right. And look, next we have someone who you won't have heard on this show before, but you may have seen some of his other work. We've got comedian Billy Darcy, who's on the shake-up for the first time. Welcome. Tim, how good? I'm on debut, mate. <laughs> What's doing? First time on the pitch. Is it everything you ever imagined it would be? Well, I found out just before we came on air that it's your second time on the pitch, mate, as the host. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little nervous without a leader, but I'm pumped up. Look, it's the blind leading the blind, so let's, uh, <laughs> let's maybe get into it then. <laughs> Hack. Shareholders love him. The general public, not so much. On Triple Jack. Have you ever made a mess and then just dipped and left it to someone else to clean up? Because the boss of Qantas has just retired from the job a couple of months early following a lot of criticism over his handling of the airline recently. And while that may sound like a bad thing for him, he's believed to be walking away with up to $22 million. Hack. Joyce is standing down following a horror fortnight for Qantas in which they dominated the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Part of the problem with all of this is the amount of money that we're seeing the chief executive walk out the door with. He was going to see Qantas continue to get kicked as long as he was there. We know that post-COVID we haven't always delivered to what our customers expect, but we are listening. You thought Qantas was a load of crap. You ain't seen nothing yet. Delta Airlines was flying between Atlanta and Barcelona when they had to do a bit of a U-turn. It's just a, a biohazard issue. I, you know, we've had a passenger who had diarrhea all the way through the airplane, so they wanted to come back to Atlanta. On Triple Jack. Yeah, look, a bit to unpack there. Look, I'd love to know what do you think of this one? Was it a long time coming for Alan Joyce and Qantas? Maybe you think it's all a bit over the top. Maybe you have your own horror flight story. Shoot us a text on 0439 757555 or give us a call 1300 055536. Let's throw this over to our shake-up guests, comedian Billy Darcy and journalist Eliza Barr. Look, I want to start with Qantas. It's been pretty hard to ignore all that's going on with the airline over the last couple of weeks. Alan Joyce, the CEO, was going to retire from the job later this year, but then there was a legal challenge from the ACCC controversy over their COVID travel credit scheme and the airline's attempt to block Qatar Airways from operating more flights here. Eliza, what have you made of all the Qantas criticism lately? It's a bit of a circus, isn't it, Tim? I think some of these concerns, I think, are quite valid in terms of, you know, this ongoing mystery about the Qatar flights at the moment. And it devolved into such a a shocking display uh, in the parliament yesterday while they were debating this very issue. And, you know, up till now, it seemed like the the tone of the opposition to this was very commercial. But now that it's coming out that 
Uh, the the incident a few years ago where women were strip searched uh, after uh, going on a flight to Qatar, if that is a factor here and it's about protecting the safety of Australian travellers in the future, I would think that that was a more valid argument. But as for the allegations that uh, the airline has been selling tickets to cancelled flights, as consumers, we're pretty simple people. We just want to get what we paid for. So I think Qantas does have a bit to answer for if that does turn out to be what's occurred. Yeah, Billy, what do you think? Is it all justified or is it a bit unfair? I'm kind of with Eliza in that you just can't be selling flights that don't exist, lads. My (laughs) mate... I don't want to, is that controversial to say? (laughs) My mate Maka bought flights to Fiji for his brother's wedding and they just cancelled the flights and refunded him half the money. So he literally paid $450 for the pleasure of going on Webjet. (laughs) It's insanity, dude. Look, I mean, it's one of those things that gets people really fired up is airlines, right? Eliza, out of all the stories we've heard about the airline, I mean, what's the one that stood out to you the most recently? I think it's it's really that consumer issue. And there, there is no doubt that Qantas, like other airlines, you know, we hear about these people who are at the top of the hierarchy in this business who are earning just extraordinary eye-watering amounts of money to do what they do. But underneath that is a whole bunch of people who really suffered during COVID when travel just wasn't an option. So I really feel for those people a lot further down the chain and it's it's not anything to do with those people, but it is about the fact that if a flight hasn't gone ahead, either all the way back when flights couldn't go in general, if they're being cancelled now, then consumers at the end of the day, I think they just simply need to be compensated. They didn't get what they paid for. Right. And what do you think about Alan Joyce? Because obviously he stepped down as the boss. There's this talk that he sort of fell on his sword, I guess, but still taking some kind of massive payout with him. I mean, Billy, do you think that's fair? Yeah, probably not. I will say with Alan Joyce, the optics on this bloke are just really poor. I mean, he comes out dressed like the Monopoly man. I didn't even know Irish people could sound posh until I heard him. I've never heard a bloke sound richer while trying to relate to poor people. It's really, it's quite uncomfortable, actually. I think maybe a more likeable CEO, and we might see those kids singing on that headland once again. Right. (laughs) What a throwback moment. I mean, Eliza, has he really done a bad job, though? Because at the end of the day, it wasn't his job to make the airline profitable, keep the shareholders happy, and I guess he's kind of done that maybe up until the last week or so. Again, this is a consumer-driven business. If you want your profits to look right and to keep everybody else happy who profits from your business, then you need to take care of the people who actually provide the business to you. So... Again, it's about consumers. If people haven't gotten what they paid for, then there are probably going to be repercussions for that. Do you reckon anyone will actually stop using an airline after they have a bad experience? Because in Australia, we don't really have much choice, do we? They kind of have us. Uh, I mean, I'm very economy driven, right? I will take the flight that is the cheapest and the least stressful within reason. You know, not multiple connections. I don't have time or the patience for that kind of nonsense if I can avoid it. But uh, I think as long as they can offer us a good deal, like people will probably continue to go back. But it does bring into question what kind of competition could potentially rise up to offer a better deal than Qantas, given what we're hearing about the way that they've been conducting business. Yeah, getting a few people texting in on this one. Chris says it's pure capitalism at its best and very worst. Someone else says Joyce has done a classic politician move, leave before the bad news gets uncovered. That is an interesting point because I want to know what you think, Billy, about the woman taking over from him, Vanessa Hudson. Has she been um, given a pretty raw deal to come in now? 
Yeah, it's pretty dodgy. <laughs> it's kind of like when you're at a barbecue and someone says something like totally inappropriate and then just sort of leaves it with you. <laughs> just you know, lets it sizzle a little like, bit. <laughs> yeah, your, your grandpa says something casually racist and just sort of hot potatoes it over to you. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's no good for her, but also the bar's low. So, you know. Oh, so you think. I'm glass half full with this sort of thing, mate. Okay, you're an optimist. You think that she, she can maybe supersede Alan Joyce in terms of public opinion? I think so. Right, okay. Well, I also want to ask about the federal government's involvement in the story, right? Because they blocked a request from Qatar Airways to be able to run more flights in Australia, which could have meant that Australians got cheaper flights. Uh, Billy, do you think people's attitudes towards Qantas has changed a lot? Like, and the government maybe misjudged how people would react to all this? I think so, because like Eliza was saying, it's just a trust thing. I've had a couple of flights with Qantas cancelled this year on my tour, and it's just such a ruiner. Like, planes aren't like buses. If I'm flying to Brisbane on Monday, I had one cancelled where Qantas said, here are the available flights, and they were all the next day. Like, I'm not just going to Brisbane at some stage. (laughs) I don't want to pop in whenever. I'm flying today for a reason, lads. So... I think there is a definite, the trust between the Australian people and our national airline is in tatters. Eliza, one of the things that's been in the news a lot is the government's explanation or attempted explanation for rejecting those extra flights in Qatar. Do you think the public is sort of satisfied with what they've heard? Well, I don't even understand, to be honest. I feel like the story is changing every single day. Is it commercial interest? Is it the Australian government trying to support Australian business by not offering up significant competition to Qantas or opening the the door for that to occur? Or is it actually about this, again, it was a shocking incident, five women subjected to something incredibly traumatic after something else already very traumatic had occurred on that flight over to Qatar. And I do understand the impetus to protect female travellers leaving Australia. But in saying that, the, the narrative to me is not clear and I do think that the government needs to get its story straight about what's actually going on here. Just on that point about Qatar Airways and how that may or may not have been a factor or the context in the decision, you know, it obviously is a bit concerning that there could be strip searches taking place on flights that come to and from Australia. Um, Are we too focused on getting cheap flights? Is there maybe, you know, people might have been like, well, still we would like those extra flights because they might bring down prices. I don't think there's any flight cheap enough where you can strip search me. I'm sorry to yeah. draw a moral yeah. line on this. I yes. don't care if it's a, a, a Tiger Air or a Bonza or whatever it is. I, I will be keeping my clothes on. And I don't think the price has anything to do with that. Yes. <laughs> valid. I agree. Well, look, speaking of keeping your clothes on on a flight, there's also been some other news floating around this week that I want to get to. I don't know if you caught this story about a Delta Airlines flight from America to Spain that had to turn around just an hour into the flight after a diarrhea incident through the plane, not in the toilet. Apparently, it was throughout parts of the cabin. Billy, it was just an hour into a flight from the US to Europe. Did the captain make the right call in turning around? I think so. I mean, fair play to whoever was responsible for this, for the sheer coverage of the diarrhoea. I mean, <laughs> to knock out a whole plane, I think we've all taken a risk at an airport cafe before, but this is pretty sensational stuff. And I don't know, me personally, I'd probably rather you just keep going. Because, really? well, it's US to Europe, let's just get there. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing is they probably didn't get on another flight until the next day. So you think it's a bit of a risk. You think it's, it's worth taking the risk. I think I would have pushed through it, but also a lot of people have, you know, higher standards for their own personal space <laughs> than I do. 
<laughs> uh, look, apparently they're to try and cover up the smell. They sprayed van- vanilla-scented disinfectant. <sighs> Eliza, do you reckon that would have made any difference? I just feel like probably not. <laughs> and, you know, I appreciate that they had a red-hot go because even an hour is a really long time to be stuck in that kind of situation in a cabin of compressed air. So... Fair play to them for having a go, but I do sort of feel I might have been the person to be like, this is incredibly inconvenient to me, but I don't think I can do this for several hours. I don't think I'll do I don't think I'll make it. Plus, whenever you walk into a bathroom and, and smell the vanilla scent, you always think someone's destroyed this thing. <laughs> you never think, oh, that's delicious, that's beautiful. You think that's covering up something horrific, mate. It's a tip-off, isn't it? I mean, look, I want to ask, Eliza, what's been your worst experience on a flight? Okay, mine was last year and I was flying uh, back from the UK to... Uh, Australia, just like every other person doing Euro summer last year. And our flight was delayed at Heathrow because there were mechanical problems with the tra- uh, with the plane, which meant that by the time we arrived in, insert Middle Eastern city in the middle of the night, our plane had already left without us to go back to Australia. Wow. And they were like, well, you're not going to make curfew. So we don't have any more flights for another 14 hours. So just start... Uh, hang in there. And by the time all of the administrative shenanigans were done, we got to have 90 minutes at a hotel half an hour away from the airport before they're like, okay, we have to go back now. (laughs) I was awake for like 48 hours and I was, my sanity is hanging on by a thread. It's the worst, isn't it? It can drive you up the wall. Billy, what about you? Worst experience on a flight? My one was kind of of my own doing. Uh, I I was talking to a gentleman at the, the waiting bay or whatever for the plane and he was moving to Australia and he had all this carry-on and he said, mate, do you mind taking one of my bags because I can't take this many? And I said, brother, I would love to help you out. Welcome to the nation. But then as I'm walking on the plane, I start to think, oh, dude, is this like a Chappelle Corby moment? Yeah. Like what is in this bag? And I start to really freak out and I basically just got on this plane with what I thought was a backpack of cocaine and... <laughs> It wasn't exactly a vibe. So yeah, you, you no. were nervous, were you? Yeah, it was obviously just a few T-shirts and he was a really nice gentleman and I regret pretty much every thought I had, but <laughs> it was a really horrible plane ride and the Americans next to me spoke to me the whole way as well, which I think is probably... <laughs> that should be more illegal than taking cocaine on a plane. No one should be subjected to that. You know what this American guy said? He said, oh, this is my wife, Janine. We're flying to Sydney. And I said, I know, mate, I am too. <laughs> We're in the same row, brother, you know? They love the banter, don't they? Well, look, Jesse had a bit of experience. He said that he failed the gunpowder test three times trying to fly from Brisbane to Adelaide for their birthday. Ended up just being my, my locally made perfume matching their tests. Ended up getting strip searched, but then the airline let me drink for free for my terrible experience. All right, well, that's, um, I guess there's some kind of payoff, I guess. <laughs> like, Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, still would rather not get strip searched, though. <laughs> All right, let's move on. People come into op shops and they feel like I should have a bargain because it's an op shop, but that op shop environment's changed. On Triple J. Yeah, we spoke about this issue earlier this week and it really divided people. The second-hand clothes market has boomed in the last few years as people try to be more conscious of the environment and waste. There are these trendy vintage shops popping up all the time and people who've made entire businesses out of reselling old clothes online. But now people have been noticing that the price of some clothes in op shops has been going up lately as well. Hack. The expectation of an op shop is that it should be cheap and a bargain for people in need. Is anyone else getting completely over Australian thrift store prices these days? The average price paid per item at our Red Cross retail store is $8.58. 
Iconic Melbourne live rock venue, The Tote, has been purchased with the help of more than $3 million raised by the community. We knew that we'd get there in the end because everyone involved wanted The Tote to stay a live music venue. As great it is that the community stepped up like this, I'm a bit concerned that it sets a precedent. On Triple J. Yeah, the charities say that they're just trying to bring in more money to be used to help people who are less fortunate, but some think that op shops shouldn't be selling donated clothes for the same price as for-profit sellers. Let me know what you think about this one. Text in 0439 757 Call in as well, 1300 Our shake-up guests today are journalist Eliza Barr and comedian Billy Darcy. Let's see where they land on this one. Eliza, do you love buying second-hand clothes? I have developed a little bit of a taste for it, yes, in the last few years. It was the ceramics and the secondhand books that drew me into the thrift store or the op shop. Okay. Uh, And then the the clothes have kind of been secondary to that. And uh, I'm a Con Marie minimalist. I watched the Gilmore Girls revival and I was transformed immediately. So uh, (laughs) I'm big on, you know, keeping things in my life that I really care about. So I'm actually very sparing even when I'm buying firsthand. And so the same philosophy applies when I'm buying secondhand. I actually just don't buy clothes that often for that reason. Uh, But it's something I'm definitely open to. I uh, bought a dress secondhand last year uh, from an influencer who had worn it once and then passed it on. And that's what I wore to my birthday last year. So I I definitely think you can get some amazing deals out there for clothes that are in really good condition. Yeah. And Billy, what about you? Are you driven by the, the desire to cut down on waste or is it affordability? What do you think? Yeah, I love op shops. I'm way more qualified to talk about this than the economic fallout of Qantas. So <laughs> pretty pumped up with the topic change, lads. But I, I love op shops. No, I'm not a minimalist or anything like that. I'm just quite poor. But I absolutely love it. And I, for me, the the part I love the most is the hunt. I love mm. going in, being like, this could be anything. You could come away with something unbelievable or you could leave empty-handed. Yeah. So that's what I like about it. It's almost like finding the treasure. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you guys noticed that prices are going up or have you seen anything you thought was overpriced in an op shop recently? Yeah, definitely. I think the prices are going up and I... Uh, watch this woman who is in the US and it's it's ASMR and one of the things that she does is she goes to Goodwill and she shows you all of the bargains and she said that the prices are going up there as well. So this is not even just an Australian thing. This is an international thing where the price of secondhand clothes is going up and I sort of have to attribute it, I think, to two things. One is that if, you know, a lot of these op shops, charity op shops are operating on the model where they're not purely selling clothes at low prices to help socioeconomically disadvantaged people. They're also using the money that they make to support other people through their charities in other ways. With the cost of living going up, they need more money to support more people because the price of supporting them is higher than it was before. So in some ways, I understand it. It's unfortunate for consumers who rely on those prices, but I understand the philosophy behind it. And then I think it's also the advent of you know, apps like Depop and the rise of eBay selling, all of these things are really good. Again, circular fashion and uh, preventing things from going to waste and wearing secondhand clothes, all of those things are, to my mind, very ethically sound. But when people have realised just how much money you can command for good quality stuff from good quality brands, I think the 
the dollar signs, it started to occur to people how much more money there is in this than we may have realised back in the day when you could get a T-shirt for a couple of bucks at a Vinnie's. Exactly. And Billy, I mean, what do you think about the rise of vintage shops in all this and people flipping clothes on Depop? Do you think that they've, they've driven up the prices and it's completely changed the model for the op shop? Yeah, 100%. I think there is a big difference between op shops and vintage shops. Like in LA in America, you go to vintage shops and there'll be a T-shirt with a mustard stain for like 80 US dollars <laughs> just because it says Nirvana. Right. It's so silly. And I think op shops, traditional op shops, where they are supposed to be like $7 a T-shirt or whatever, I think they've got caught up in how trendy it's become uh, for ethical reasons or otherwise, the, the op shop experience. It's, it's sort of in vogue right now and they're sort of riding the wave, but it... But, I mean, what are we doing here? What is the point of the op shop? Is it to provide affordable clothing or to just sort of fit out everyone for splendour? <laughs> yes, that's right, because Be- people have actually get it, been getting criticised because one of the things that, you know, girlies on TikTok will do is go and buy up a bunch of actually cool stuff for very cheap at an op shop and then sell it in their vintage stores on Etsy for massively marked up prices. Yeah, and some of the op shops are saying that. They're saying that the people complaining about things being too expensive are the people who are resellers of these clothes and they're kind of annoyed because it's ruining their business model. And I think it does come down to that argument about, you know, what are op shops there to do? Because they say, look, if we're able to sell something for this kind of price, and that means that we're bringing in more money that then goes to help people. And I guess that's the argument at the end of the day, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It's about which way you're helping people. Are you only helping people by offering them very affordable clothes or are you helping them by bringing in more money overall to funnel that into probably still clothes but also different kinds of services to help them? So I think it's a it's a complicated issue and there are merits to both keeping those prices low but also to creating more income to support people in need. Yeah, and Jane's come in on the text line saying, I've been an op shopper for ages, death's more expensive, but I still don't mind spending my money there because it goes to a good cause. And actually speaking of donations, I'm sure you've both heard of what happened with this iconic pub and music venue in Melbourne called The Tote. Was at risk of being sold to developers and lost, so a campaign started where people raised money from the, among the community, then they helped someone purchase it so they could keep it alive. And it worked. $3 million was raised in order to help the new owners. Billy, it's pretty impressive, right? It's unreal, yeah. It's kind of depressing, though. I feel like we're always trying to save live music in this country. <laughs> yeah. Like, we got to yeah. save it. Like, does anyone even like it? You know, like, what are we doing? <laughs> But good on this bloke. He actually is getting 1,500 of the donor's names tattooed on him. Yes. So he put his money where his mouth is and stuff like this is just unreal. Good on him. And Eliza, is it nice to see people coming out and getting around the music and the arts with their money? Absolutely. But I think it really just points to the massive void of funding and support from governments who do have like portfolios that indicate a certain level of responsibility that Mm. they should have. Like not everyone. And I, you know, I like NRL as much as the next person. Okay. It's my code of choice. I like sport, but I also like going to listen to sad people singing folk music about their (laughs) lost lovers. Okay. I want to have both. And I don't think that one should come at the expense of the other. I do think governments need to step up, put their money where their mouth is and provide the appropriate support so that the music industry and arts can keep flourishing. Well, that's what one expert said to us. They said, like, this is obviously great to see the community doing this, but a little concerning that it may set a precedent where governments go, oh, well, if people want to save a venue, then they can save a venue. We don't need to step in. Yeah, Yeah, I hate that. And speaking of, like, the the music, like, I miss my ex-girlfriend as much as the next man. (laughs) And I think 
arts should be treated, if sport is enriching the community, so is music. Absolutely. And the government should be funding it in the same way. Absolutely. I actually remember I reported on a story many, many years ago. Statistically, venues that have live music in them are less violent. So I I think that's as good and as an incentive as any if you're not the kind of person who is compelled by music, as I am, as many people are. If that's not compelling to you, reducing violence and antisocial behaviour in venues and supporting small business by making them hospitable, safe, enjoyable places to be... That's a very good thing and governments should want to get behind it. And just quickly, we need to move on, but Eliza, what would you be willing to spend your money on to save? I would put my body on the line for Baratalia and Leichhardt. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. I really care about pasta, so... And Billy, what about you? I would spill blood for Vic on the Park in Marrickville. Yes. I love that pub. Thankfully, uh, local underdog Justin Hems purchased it, so (laughs) good on that guy. What a battler. (laughs) Okay, we've got a couple of texts coming in. Simon says, I personally donated to the Tote campaign because I feel that we need to support our local music scene. The entire industry was crippled during the pandemic and there is clearly only so much that the government is capable and willing to do. All right, time to move on. Hack. Your job is just the place you go to avoid seeing your family, all right? It doesn't need to be the most important part of your existence. On Triple Jack. Yeah, look, I'm sure you've all heard this saying, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. What do you think about it, though? Is it true or should we just accept that work is work and stop trying to love it? Because a study in the UK has found that younger people are caring less and less about work, simply not as much of a priority in your lives as it was for your parents or your grandparents. Is that you? Why do you think it is? Let us know. Message in on 0439 757 I want to put this to the shake-up guests, journalists Eliza Barr and comedian Billy Darcy. Eliza, we don't think work is as important as older generations. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I'm a terrible example and I feel like I often come on this show and something like this topic comes up and I have to be like, unfortunately, I'm obsessed with my job and I love it. So, you know, I think people are differently. This is what I've learned from, you know, studying leadership a bit in my job. People are differently motivated. Some people are motivated to succeed professionally. Some people are motivated uh, by achieving things or by learning things meeting goals, even if it's not necessarily climbing the ladder. Some people are motivated by making enough money and having a particular work-life balance to be able to switch off at five o'clock and go home. None of those things are good or bad or better than the other. They just are different motivations for different people. So I think it's really, it's a boundary thing for individual people to know what it is that they're willing to give and what they're not willing to sacrifice and making choices about their career and the way that they spend their time accordingly. Yeah, Billy, what do you think is causing the change among the generations? Do you think that maybe younger people are realising that working hard, getting a good paying job, you know, might not give them the financial freedom that it used to, so they don't care as much? I think so, yeah. I, I think with this, the property market is actually a lot to do with it because I feel like all my friends in their 20s are divided into two groups, either grinding 24-7 to get on the property market or they're so, they've just given up completely on the idea of ever owning anything and they're just like, whatever, dude. I'm going to enjoy the time I have. Yeah, and it's an interesting one too. I've been wondering this too. Is it like, is it a good thing to have a lot of passion for your job or not? Because sometimes what I've seen is a lot of the time the people that really love their job are more willing to do unpaid work and overtime and respond to emails outside of work hours. So does it sort of leave those people in a bit of a vulnerable position, Eliza? 
I think it depends on the power that they hold. You know, not everyone has the power to say no to unreasonable requests and their passion may drive them to do things that are unreasonable and aren't fair that they're really not appropriately compensated for versus someone that does have a lot of support that might have a much higher position in the hierarchy that has the option to say, I want to do this because I care about it and the overall compensation and support that they receive may be more commensurate with the effort that they put in. So again, I think it's not the kind of thing that leaders in business and in anyone who's a leader in a job, you don't want to rely on the idea that people will bleed themselves dry for you. The default should, I think, be letting workers establish their own boundaries. And again, it comes down to the personal decision about what industries you're going to be in, what it is that you're willing to put up with and uh, advocating for yourself as well about the balance that you want to achieve in your own life. Yeah, so Hosiah has uh, texted in from the Sunshine Coast saying, my dad always told me to find something you enjoy for work, but don't do what you love. That's what I've done and I regret nothing. It's an interesting take on that phrase as well. Another thing that's been kicking around, we are running out of time a little bit, but is the idea that working less would be a good thing. We always hear about the four-day working week, but something that's come up this week is about how many holidays we should get. Some economists reckon Australia should be doing what parts of Europe are doing, giving workers five or six weeks of leave a year. Billy, at the moment, the standard amount of time here is four weeks for a full-time worker. Do you reckon it's enough? I mean, honestly, I don't want to be like a narc, but I think it is. Like, four weeks is heaps if you go overseas. But at the same time, I'm very much in favour of getting more European in this country. I feel like <laughs> Europeans are yes. just born, they just quit on, like, day two of their life and just put it in neutral. And it's quite inspirational, to be honest. So if that's what they're doing, I do think we should follow their lead. Because we think of it as cosmopolitan as well. I know, yeah. But, I mean, they're napping all the time. I think these ancient cultures, like... They've had generations before them. They've, <laughs> they've all had, had a they've all had a run at it. No one's getting over the hill. So who cares? <laughs> exactly. They figured it out. And that's all we have time for on the Shake Up. Thanks again to our Shake Up guests, Eliza Barr and Billy Darcy. Dave Marchese is away again next week, but Joe Lauder will be in the hot seat. Bye-bye. Hack on Triple Jack. Dee Salmon here, sliding into your podcast feed to let you know that the Hookup Podcast has all the sex and relationship content you need. Honestly, you need us in your life. Join us each week as we talk all things love and f***ing like this. Foreplay is also there so that you have great sex. Like I don't know about anyone who's given themselves an orgasm in two minutes. Like it's fine. It's the fast food of orgasms. That's the hookup. If you like hack, you'll love us. Get us wherever you get your pods.